Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Magic and the Other Guy. And Kevin and I are sitting outside my home in Lake Wiley, Charlotte, North Carolina. You know the routine by now. Kevin will pick a subject and we have a conversation about it. Sometimes we even stay on target, typically not. Kevin, what are we talking about today? Well, actually, the order of episodes is going to kind of follow the actual order of life. In that last episode, we focused on bicycles, which naturally in real life led to first cars. Mm. So let's talk about first cars this time around. First cars. Yes. Now, that's another great that's another great topic. Yeah. My first car was a Ford Escort van. Van? A van. Yes. Uh, and the reason I had a Ford Escort van is because it was the cheapest car that I, I, I've told you before, um, we've discussed before, I, my first job was at a little Mazda dealer in oh, yeah. Loughborough, a little town where I grew up. And on their forecourt, one of the trading cars was a Ford Escort van, which were very popular with little one-man construction firms, you know, plumbers and carpenters and that sort of thing. I assume paneled sides. Paneled sides, yep. two little doors at the back, but basically from the front it looked like a Ford Escort, from the back it, it looked like a little van. Did it have windows in the back or was it even, even sealed it, up? In like the rear doors it did, if memory yeah. serves, yes. It was a sort of off, probably, probably... Um, the collectors would probably call it Wimbledon white. It was slightly off-white, a little bit of cream to it. Yep. But I, it was the cheapest car that Howlett's had <laughs> as a trade-in, and they allowed me to get a very good deal on it. And uh, as soon as I passed my test, that was the car that I had. Actually, before I passed my test, because I had learned to drive in that, actually. Um, and it cost me £175. So it was, I don't wow. Know, about $300, I would uh -huh. say. Yeah, something like that. That's awesome. Yeah, and how about you? <laughs> Mine actually was, uh, and this was 80, 85, uh, I turned 16, and Dad surprised me, and I got a 72 Chevelle. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> Straight in there. It was, it was interesting. The funny part was, and we talked about you know, me being into surfing at that time, well, everybody I knew drove bugs. Bugs or some sort of Volkswagen iteration. Right. So it was totally different. For me to end up with a muscle car, really. Yeah, right. So, but you know, it was it was a great little you know high school car. All the all the gearheads really wanted it, and I was like going, I kind of thought I was getting a bug, but <laughs> you just <laughs> go with it. And, yeah. uh, and did you really want the bug, or were you more than happy to have the? Oh, I, I like I like the show. I mean, it's great to have freedom and, and have your own car. And again, it it was looking back, it was even better than I thought it was at the time. But, uh, yeah, no kidding. It, of course, it had plenty of power. It was a V8 with a four-barrel carb, and uh, it was a 350. Yeah. So it wasn't the SS, but it was. It had bucket seats, and uh, the shifter was between the seats. And I think they, the GM called that Hydroglide. I can't remember. It was almost it looked like an airplane. You know. Oh, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know exactly. So it was a little cooler than having it, you know, on the on the tree where you shifted with the the hand lever. Yes. And to operate your transmission, didn't you have to pull up on the handle? Yeah. Exactly. In, yes. In between the seats, just yeah. to disengage it and move it, ratchet it forward and backwards. Yeah, and it had you know, it was a, a bar shape, and it would be you know, connect on both sides. Yes. Yeah. It yeah. Slid know, back know, and forth know, yeah. with kind of a glass. Uh, indicator of where you know yeah. park drive reverse and stuff was. Yeah, well, you had a much cooler first car than I ever did. 
Well, I would have longed to have had a Chevelle. Well done, you. Yeah. And my next car after that, and again, we may have chatted about this before, so you stop me if, if I'm, I'm telling this story twice. My second car after that was a Ford Cortina Mark III. And I wanted that car because it looked a little bit like a first-generation Camaro. Yes, yes. You, you did mention that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So Which that, is still it's a great story. Yeah, so. that, was the, that was the car that, I mean, I just remember looking in Hot Rod magazine, and drag racing magazines in England back at the, I mean, and there was so little opportunity to visit drag racing strips in England. There really wasn't many. Uh, the most famous of all was probably Santa Pod, which was down in Northampton, which wasn't far away from where I grew up. Uh, but even Santa Pod, quite frankly, with all due respect to Santa Pod, it always seemed to want more and more renovation work done to the buildings and the track. It, I never remember it looking in pristine condition, but it was a, it was a very popular drag strip in England. I think primarily just because there were so few about, you know. Um, but I do remember being excited by drag racing, particularly looking across from England over to the United States and seeing the big 350s and, and V8 engines and roaring up and down drag strips. Thought this was a really cool four-barrel hollies on. This was something that I wanted to get involved in. And I just remember that the nearest looking car in England to a first generation Camaro was a Mark III Cortina. And uh, I had one of those. And um, changed the engine over to a V6 because it's the nearest thing to a V8 and mm-hmm. put a four barrel carburetor on it. And if I remember right, my four barrel carburetor that I made fit onto this V6 Ford engine was from an RX-7, a rotary engine Mazda. Okay, yeah. Because again, you remember, I was working at a little Mazda dealer, and yep, we, we occasionally the, would the have- The Wankel engine. Yeah, we would have um, wrecked cars come in, which we would strip down for parts. And uh, I'm sure that those RX-7s, I mean, again, forgive my memory, because we're going back so long, I'm sure they were a four-barrel carburetor. And it was just the appeal of, to me, I've got to get this four-barrel carb to work on this V6 in this Ford Cortina. Got to do it. Again, you remember when we were talking about bicycles and I said I never want to feel inadequate, like I can't do this, I yeah, want exactly. to be able to do it? That's what I set out to do. I thought, I'm going to make this work, I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to do it. And Terry Howlett, who was my boss at the Mazda dealer, was very keen to support me in doing this. He would just allow me to work on the car at nights and at the weekend, and I would lock up the garage. If it was midnight, I would be allowed to lock up the garage and work in the garage with all the tools and everything there in the evenings, you know, so I, I got that to work. So anyway, that was my second car, a Mark Three Cortina that uh, was made to look as close as possible as I could get it to be a first-generation Camaro. Very yeah. good, yeah. yeah. So yeah. What, what came after your Chevelle? Uh, well, I actually had the Chevelle for a good while. I had I got it in 85. I tend to just hang on to cars for a while. Um, and one of the funny uh, stories with that car is, you know, we lived in Florida when, when we got it. And I remember, da- now I think about it, you know, I, was, I remember him, before I, he surprised me, he asked about what, what color you think is good on a car. And I remember at the time I said white, you know. And that's, that's relative. I mean, white on a Lamborghini Countach is amazing. White on a Volkswagen Bug, eh, kind of boring. But actually it was very perfect for this car so it needed a paint job when he got it and he painted it white and the funny part is it was originally a two-tone it, it didn't have a vinyl top but it had a white top green bottom oh yeah okay and yeah, but yeah, when he, yeah. he got it, it needed a, so they just painted it completely white but it always had that trim on the c-pillar where it would have separated yes but it, it, yes. if it was a solid color car they wouldn't have had that trim 
So it was always unique and it had that, that trim break. Uh, and it was white vinyl interior. So really for Florida, it was perfect because it didn't heat up. Yeah. You know, it gets it in the sun all day. It's not going to burn you <laughs> getting in it. But, uh, and two, it had, you know, what, what they would call bucket seats. But back then they were just a single seat, really. There was wholly, hardly any bolster. And being vinyl, you go around a corner and you just be sliding across <laughs> the, you know. Like, I know just what you mean. Yes, a lot, a lot of folks refer to uh, seats as being bucket seats, you know, in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s cars. And when you look at them, I think, not really bucket seats, are no, they? Not really. They're single seats. <laughs> there's, not, there's not an awful lot of support there on the, on the side. No, no. But I had that car, you know, when I went to college in 87, so I moved to Tennessee. Well, of course, Tennessee, we get different weather patterns, and we'd occasionally get snow and icy situations. The tail of that car, I, well, it could rain hard. And I'd be going around a normal curve, and that tail would just let loose. And it got, I got to where I was so used to it, my heart rate wouldn't even change. Really? I would just feel yeah. that tail going around, and I would just take the wheel and spin it back around until I leveled it out and kept going. But, uh, yeah, it was quite loose in the rear. But uh, it ended up um, in 90, I was uh, driving to visit my, my mom and dad in Maryville, where we visited. Yeah. And I was pulling out onto a four-lane. It was pouring down rain. And a car, a truck, a little pickup truck coming up on my left side, uh, hit it right in front of the front wheel. Um, I don't, I don't think they had their headlights on in right. this pouring rain. But after the wreck, there was no way to prove it because their whole front end was destroyed. Yeah. But I still remember vividly the moment that thing hit. In the time it took me to spin 180 degrees, in my head I went, "Well, this is going to cost." And then I rolled to a stop. Oh, Fortunately, nobody was hurt. I think I, I kind of bumped the, it caused me to bump the side window when it hit. Yeah. But I had a little tiny knot out of that. But, uh, you know, everybody was okay. And that's the main well, thing. Well, again, that's the main thing. But that was the end of the car. Everything, everything windshield forward had shifted. Uh, so that was the end of that one. Yeah. So you made me think now about this wonderful, wonderful to me, Mark, Mark three Cortina I had. And I had a lot of fun. I mean, endless joy as a young mechanic keen and enthusiastic to work on the car trying all sorts of different things and of course having put a v6 engine into this car which was designed to have a two liter straight four pinto engine uh, that alone was quite a, quite an operation to get that engine in there and then i had to make the exhaust system for it and i was trying to recreate that sort of wonderful American V8 burble from a 350 engine, for example. Well, obviously I couldn't do that, but I was trying to recreate as close as I could get to that, but also keep the car street legal um, in terms of sound. So we had a couple of little cherry bomb exhausts that I managed to find from somewhere. Don't ask me where. One of the magazines was advertising them, custom car or something. And um, with my fellow mechanics in the, in the garage, we all, one weekend, work together to create the exhaust system just you know sort of finding pieces of exhaust that no one was using from the stores and buying them cheap because they were outdated models and welding them together and yep. so it took a weekend to create the exhaust system for it but just the joy of uh, the, the sense of achievement of building something that didn't exist before has always stayed with me and mm. so trying to find things like the rubber mountains to mount the exhaust with and going to the stores and seeing what parts Mazda were using and then I remember the stores manager 
Bob his name was, saying, you know, you should go to this shop that deals in, I think it was old Jags, and I think you need a Jag mounted on that. It'd be just the thing for that. And then getting them and fitting them together and putting them on the car, such a, such a joy, great fun. Loved all of that. Well, it's a lot, quite a, quite a jump from uh, not being able to put your Speedo on your bicycle. Well, so, I mean, you, <laughs> you said that you said you're going to make up, right. make yeah. strides, and you did right well, away. Uh, yeah, so. I never wanted to feel that sense of inadequacy. I suppose you know, couldn't do it and didn't know how to do it. And uh, I set out. Yes, I mean, no, you're right. I mean, there's one thing that our little conversations down the lake bring out is you you try and sort of piece together how life works, and, yeah. and that's an example of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. jump, jumping back to your, your question a little earlier, back my, my next one after the Chevelle was wrecked, for a while I had to you know make do with what I could drive, and it was mom and dad's, one of their sedans, which just wasn't getting it, being you know 21 years old. It was not what I wanted to drive. So I went out in search of uh, you know whatever I was going to get next. And what I found was, I, I knew these existed, and to see one today is very rare, but they were called Sun Chasers. And they were Toyota Celicas. Oh, okay. Uh, late 70s into about 80, I think, is maybe when they quit. But this one company would take them, I think, brand new from Toyota, bring them to their shop in Ohio, I think it was. I think their company is called Griffith Conversions. And they would uh, ch chop the top off of them, and they would mount their top on it, which was very similar to a Lancia Zagato. Yeah. They would have the hard top uh, Targa that you could lift off, but the back window would fold down. It was it was uh, a fold down window with a yeah, soft window. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah. you could you could have like four options. You could have everything off and down, or you could have just the targa off, or just the back window down, or you could have everything sealed up. Because I thought they were great, you know, because it was kind of a convertible. So I've been great hoping car. to find yeah, one, and yeah. I did find one in Knoxville. Uh, the lady was selling it because the Mod Miata had just come out, and she had bought a new Miata. And was going to let this uh, Sun Chaser go, so that was that was the second car, and which was great because, like I say, I loved. It didn't have the, near the power or anything, but that didn't bother me. I was just enjoying having the. It was just a cool shape that did cool things. Yeah, I mean, it was a nice looking little Celica with the <clears throat> with the conversion. It was red, it was red over black. So. Yeah, one of my favorite cars uh, of everything that I've had really, but one of my favorite, talking of sort of quirky designs, is definitely the Traction Avant. The Duchevo Citroen van was very similar. I had, I had a little uh, Duchevo, Citroen Duchevo van, 2CV, two horsepower really, a uh, little Citroen van. I'm not sure they ever really made it over to the States. There might be one or two over here, but perhaps not many. I would be surprised. France was absolutely, literally littered with them at one point. They were very cheap, very affordable, made by Citroen. Farmers had them, very softly sprung. And one of the sales points of a, of a De Chavaux van was it should be, a farmer should be allowed to carry a supply of hen's eggs to, to market over a plowed field and they should survive. You know, so it's very softly sprung. It was an air-cooled little engine, two-cylinder engine. Uh, but just quirky and fun and almost impossible to destroy. You know, you could run it and run it and run it and they just keep going, they just keep going. Anyway, before that, I should say, before the Duchevo made its appearance to the world, uh, Citroen had this car called the Traction Avant, which means front wheel drive. And it was made, I think it was 1937, and um, it was an incredibly advanced car for its time. Remember, 1937, so before the start of the Second World War in Europe, 
and this car was front wheel drive and it had torsion bar suspension well you know the great technical breakthrough in Formula One over the last 20 years has probably been torsion bars you know great suspension and do away with coil springs and uh, Citroen were playing with torsion bars de literally decades ago so and it was also a monocoque it was the first I would say it's the first monocoque car that Citroen produced and one of the first monocoque cars in Europe so there was no separate chassis as it would have been on your uh, well, front rails on rear rails on the Chevelle, for example. This uh -huh. was entirely a monocoque car, but with front-wheel drive and torsion bar suspension, and just wonderful, just a wonderful, quirky car. But great sense of motoring, a great sense of when you're going down, driving down these old country lanes in France, that you really, you are driving, you know, and you, it's a real piece of mechanical engineering. Oh yeah, great fun, great fun to, uh, great fun to restore. Yeah, I remember you mentioned that one in our. Uh episode on great finds how you found the was it was it windshield wiper regulator yeah, yeah, yeah well, the, wind, the windscreen, windscreen regulator. regulator yes they had this quirky design for for cooling was you would un, you know with with a regulator just a control knob basically undo this control knob on the on the on the screen and it would push the bottom of the screen forwards so you would have great just airflow almost like being on a motorcycle you know real as they say fly in the face motoring yeah. and then you could wind it back down and close it again yeah yeah i think now there are a lot more quality restoration parts for those cars and when i was restoring them 20 something years ago them it sounds like a lot i've restored a couple of them um but the the, the quality of the restoration pieces that i was exposed that i could find were really very poor and it kind of let the trade down a little bit but i think over the years the quality of all of that stuff has come on leaps and bounds but great fun yeah, yeah once they see a demand for it they can you know start putting it out and it's, it's worthwhile to do it was things like kevin it was things that used to annoy annoy me but yeah, some people might not be so frustrated by it but i would buy new front drive shaft gator boots for example that were rubber and obviously over years these things corrode and fall to pieces and, and they need replacing but i would find new new gator boots for sale for attraction avant they'd already be split down the seam line where uh -huh. they'd been m molded you know come on we've got to do better than this this is no better than the part i'm replacing that's been around for 50 years yeah yeah Oh, and actually, I kind of forgot. Actually, the Sun Chaser wasn't my second car. It, it's it's kind of funny. I go back because it was a cause secondary. I actually had a Porsche 914 in there. Oh, did you? Yeah, that one um, actually was after my freshman year. After my freshman year of college, we all uh, a bunch of us guys decided to get an off-campus house. Yeah. And well, mom and dad had had decided to move back to Tennessee because now they could kind of without me being in school, high school or whatever, you know. With, being, being in the same house they could go and come as they they felt like if they yeah. want to go to florida for a month they go so they decided to move back to tennessee well while we're the latter part of high school dad had bought an mgb oh a 77 mgb which i everybody everybody always said he kind of bought that for me to, you know as a nice thing for me but always kind of said it's, it's, it's my car and i'll let you drive it because he hardly ever drove it and he, that was a very he, he was busy repairing it let me guess you drove it and he repaired it <laughs> It was not the most reliable thing. No. But that was a very different thing. I mean, my family grew up very much four-door GM cars from as far back as I can remember. Yeah. Totally practical, nothing exciting. Yeah. Um, but I, he must have, I think a friend had it, and they gave him a good deal on it, and he said, ah, what the heck, we'll, we'll get that. So 
when I went through my freshman year of college, summer was coming up, and I was already living in the house with some, some other guys. And so I'm like, well, they're moving back to Tennessee. Great, the MG will be up here. And, you know, I'll, I'll grab it and go, well, Dad sells the thing before yeah. they move. Yeah. And it wouldn't have bothered me as much if they were just kind of like lowering assets to make it easier move. But he turns around and buys a 79 Monte Carlo because it was, quote, clean. <laughs> so I'm like, well, that's just the same thing. You're just bringing another car up here. It was a nice-looking Monte Carlo, I'll give him that, although it was green over green, which I don't know is the best color combination for a 79. But... So I'm like, okay. So I, part of me kind of got a little bit miffed that, you know, eh, you know, I was looking forward to having the sports car again. Yeah. So lo and behold, I was out with uh, one of my housemates, and we went by this used car lot, and there was this uh, little nice-looking royal blue 914 2.0, 75 uh, year, and uh, 57,000 miles. And I said, on a whim, I was going to test drive it. And I was used to that little MG. Yeah. And comparing it to this Porsche, this Porsche had all the power in the world compared to it, and it was just built tighter. I mean, it just felt really good. And I had had all the money that I kind of saved up working in high school and stuff like that, and just had it kind of in the bank and stuff like that. And lo and behold, I just on a whim bought this car. <laughs> and then having to kind of let my parents know that I'd spent all my money on this sports car. How did they take that? Well, they were actually handled it very well considering, because actually we were living in a, at a house that didn't even have a carport, and here I had this car just in the grass and I was like, well, that's not going to work. So while they moved up there, I ended up taking up half their carport with it. And then later they moved to the house that you visited in, in Tennessee, the yep. one we stayed at. And you know, I had half the garage for a year or more. However Dad put up with that, I'll never know. But that's patience, I guess. But uh, So I had it for a little while. Well, you've got some very exciting cars, I must say. Not many is the thing. I tend to hang on to them for a long, long, long time. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think if, you, if you even count the ones that my wife has had, We've a total of nine yeah. in my whole life. So, Yes. Uh, yeah. Did you like that Porsche? I, mean, I do. I, yeah. I, mean, I did. I, if I could have any car back I ever owned, it would be that one. And it doesn't hurt the fact that they've gone up in value. But I did sell it for more than I paid for it. I will say that. After two or three years, I had it, and I sold it for a little bit more. Well, that's, yeah, well, that's always good. If you can, it, yeah, I mean, it's a bit like a house, isn't it? I think if you can buy a house enjoy some of your life in that house two years three years five years whatever it is and then sell it on and make a little money at the end of it that's great isn't it i think that's a great thing i know we're talking about cars not houses but i'm trying to stay on target with this one but yes it's the same with cars and if you can if you can i, I don't think i've ever sold a car as a loss um you know i think if you can just i tell you what for example that that uh, that cortina that mark three cortina i sold through through, I think the magazine was Custom Car, which was a UK publication. And I advertised it in the back of Custom Car. And a chap came up from London to Loughborough on the train to buy it. And I thought as soon as he called me, I mean, obviously this is all pre-internet, pre-cell phone days, yeah. mobile days, as we'd say in England. Um, he called me and said he was coming to look at look at the car and that he was coming up on the train from London and I thought well there's no way this chap is not going to buy the car I was say, you're, you, yeah you kind of kind of feel they're pretty I mean, you know got a good incentive to, to to take it and go home I was very confident I must have said I was very confident in in the condition of the car I mean I, I thought it was a terrific car so um I was very I was very 
pleased within myself, happy within myself that he would be happy with the car once we went for a little test drive in it. And uh, yeah, we went for a two or three minute run around the neighborhood in the car and he said, absolutely, I want this car. And um, I think I basically doubled doubled the money on that car. I mean, bear in mind we're, we're not yeah, talking... Yeah, you made a lot of upgrades bear, too. So. Bear in mind we're not talking a huge amount of money in the first place. It's probably cost me something like £300 and I sold it for £600 or something. But yes, most of that, of course, I had to do a lot of extra work. But just the fact that I managed to work on that car, enjoy that car, invest a little bit of money in the car, not lose on it, is a, is a great feeling, isn't it? You think, yeah. oh, that leads you on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is hard to do because daily drivers, you know, you can't really, they just depreciate. Oh, no. They, yeah. Generally, cars are horrible investments. They Collector are. cars can be good if you know what you're doing or, yes. and have a, a good stroke of luck. So. Yes, but I think now, I mean, the, the whole world of the automotive world has, has changed. But back when we were growing up as kids, the used and second-hand car market was more popular than new cars, I want to say. Like, it might be just me and my cohorts not having an awful lot of money, but no, not many people were buying new cars. The second-hand car market was it was huge. Oh, yeah. yeah. My, my parents never bought a brand-new car until 1989. That was the first time they ever bought a brand-new one. Yes. Because, you know, you don't want to take the hit. You know, you let somebody else take the depreciation hit. And you get it after yeah. they've used it gently, hopefully, yeah. for a small amount of time. But talking about talking going going back a bit now, talking about first cars again. Um, and re- remember, on our episode of bicycles, I was describing how I had a coming together with an eight fifty mini when I was on my cycle. Uh, one of my friends, <clears throat> and I just said then actually in in that episode, um, imagine the other guy that. Minis were everywhere. Like they were extremely popular cars. They're very cheap, cheap daily drivers. And one of my school friends, he had an 850 Mini, and they were very. You know, you, we all know what they look like. They're very small. They're yeah. very small cars, aren't they? Well, we went for a, we went on our an annual holiday once, uh, driving this car with four of us, four big chaps in that 850 Mini, including luggage, and we drove all the way down to Cornwall. I distinctly remember this, and thinking, I don't know how we ever got there and back. You know, we were so crammed in this tiny car. Um, we took all, and we were camping as well, so we had camping equipment with us. And we got down there, and we were driving around, but the, the Mini did seem to keep overheating. I think, <laughs> not oddly surprising, really. The engine was overheating. It was only a little 850 straight four Leyland engine. And, um, one of my friends, he said, "You know what we should do is we'll, let's let's pull the um, let's pull the thermostat out of it and just check that the thermostat's working." Uh, so we stopped at the side of the road I'd, with a few basic tools. I mean, we were probably using Whitworth spanners instead of Imperium. Anything that we could find, we managed to take the thermostat housing off the car and take the stat out. We put it in. We boiled up some water on a campfire. And so we had hot water and we dropped the thermostat into this mug of water, determined that the thermostat wasn't where this is at the side of the field, uh, side of a road in a field somewhere. I'm not sure where we were, right down in Devon or Cornwall somewhere, decided that the thermostat failed. So we just threw it away and then put the car back together without a thermostat in it. But it ran absolutely fine. You know, we just took that problem away and never replaced the thermostat. And I don't think uh, I don't think that car ever had its thermostat put back in it again several hundred miles later you know wow yes it worked very well 
roadside repairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my next uh, the, after the sun changed. So now I'm you know forgetting the Porsche because it was a side thing. But you know now it's two into regular daily drivers. And then I was out of out of college and and starting my career, and I just kind of wanted something a little more uh, reliable. And such. I mean, the Toyota did fine. Being, you know, it was a Toyota product, so they obviously run well. I can't remember how many miles were on it, but it was well over 100, I'm sure. But uh, I started shopping around, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted. But I remember Dad saying something about, "Well, why don't you consider a Honda?" Well, at the time, I didn't. I said, "Everybody has a Honda. I just want something different. I always like something a little different." So I was looking at this, that, and the other, and then. One day, I just happened as I was shopping around, which is always kind of fun, car shopping, you sure. jump around from and try different things. I said, "All right, I'll 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 drive this Accord." And once I drove it once, I said, "Now I know why everybody buys a Honda. It was smooth as silk, and it was actually a little the next generation back. This was the one that still had the flip up headlights." Yeah. And then I said, "Well, all right, now my mind's kind of changed." So I went around to the Honda dealerships and I found one in Oak Ridge, which is a, you know adjacent to Knoxville. And it was the, the the 90 model, and it was a couple of years. This was 93, so it was still a used car, um, but it was the newer model with the exposed headlights, not the flip ups and all that. So it was a, a slight body change, and I ended up buying that. And I tell you, I think overall it's probably the best car I'll have ever owned because it just did everything, it ran like a top all the time, and just did everything it needed to do. And I put 100,000 miles of myself, you know, driving on it. Japanese engineering, like German engineering, I think, is, is just tremendous. And again, I'm probably slightly biased towards Japanese engineering from my early days as an apprentice mechanic. <clears throat> that contrast between what England was producing in the 1970s, all the Leyland products, and uh, what, what Japan was producing, yeah, it was just night and day, sort of everything made sense. It was lightweight, it fitted just where it was supposed to fit, on Japanese cars, I mean. Uh, and on the whole, they were incredibly reliable. Yeah. I think the, you know, if there was a weak spot, it was probably the bodywork. Some of the bodywork would tend to rust very quickly, very thin gauge steel. But just the sense of logical design when you look at a, a Japanese car, of what, you know, Toyota or Honda or Mazda or whatever it would be, they do seem to make sense. As German engineered cars, BMW, Mercedes, Audi, Porsche, they all they all make sense. Um, some of the Italian cars <laughs> don't make an awful lot of sense. We all love some of them, you know, we're all passionately uh, attracted to products from Italy. Um, and, and some of the Leyland cars as well. The, the Jags would always leak oil and the carburetors would be leaking and the Lucas Electronics would be failing. And you, you, I was comparing that to what Japan was doing, like you say, with your Honda and uh, Mazdas. Just a night and day difference oh, yeah. what was happening around the world. Hopefully now we've all caught up with one another. Well, a prime example on the Honda. The Honda had a uh, retractable antenna by the trunk, and it, you know when you get in the car, if the radio was on, it automatically went up. Yeah. And retracted, you know, when you turned the car off, and something hit it or something at some point and kinked it just enough to where it would not go down. Right. So it eventually just had to break off. So at the time I was like, going, well, that's going to be kind of expensive, you know. Still, I said, so I just took a, a wire. A wire hanger and yes. uh, and made it perfectly straight <laughs> and put a little turn at the top so you yeah. wouldn't poke your eye out with yeah. it. And I just kind of attached it inside there. But until I actually had that thing, that telescopic antenna fixed a few years later, every time you turned that car on or off, the motor still went. <laughs> it always did what it was supposed to do. 
Well, yeah. the, the car I ended up buying after that one was a Volvo C70. Okay. Again, that was my first 4.8 minus the Porsche into a European daily driver and actually kind of a luxury car. The opposite. I mean, on any given day, the antenna might decide, I'm just not going to work. I'll, I'll work today. I won't work tomorrow. <laughs> this light will come on today. It'll be gone tomorrow. I mean, I, yeah. I didn't have it two weeks, and there was one door indicator light that was going off like it shouldn't be. Well, and I was like, Chitty Bang Bang, really. He's got his own personality. I guess. Yeah, it's going to work. I mean, it did fine. I drove it for 175,000 miles, but it was European, and it had European quirks to it, whereas the Japanese car just did exactly what it's supposed to do every single time. Well, that description you've you've just given us about putting a, a coat hanger as an aerial, I mean, that's been kind of universal aerial in the in the automotive trade for as long as I can never yeah, remember. Yeah. But again, I was like, say, very fastidious. I made, I made sure it was straight as an arrow. I got a good thick gauge one that, that wasn't white or something. You know, it was a nice, you know, sheen or whatever it was, but it worked. Solved the problem for, for a while. Yeah. Those first cars, are, are, you know, every, that we all have, they form lifelong memories in a way that cars that we have these days, just daily runarounds, don't seem to, don't seem to have a sort of that strong no, memory. No, they don't have the personality. They don't have the personality. That's exactly right, yeah. Well, and how many of them look just alike? I mean, they're just starting start to get more, you know. I, I don't know if that's just the change in engineering or change in finances as we hopefully move through life and make progress, or the delight in just keeping something running when you're a younger person, you haven't got an awful lot of disposable income, and you need that car to keep running. Yeah. I had one of my early cars as well. I'm not sure how I ended up with this, one of those buying and selling, a little bit of horse trading, as you you describe it. My granddad and my dad would love that expression of horse trading because they did used to horse trade, actually. We'll get into that in a, another conversation. Um, I ended up with an Austin Princess, which is a fairly terrible car. And look, look it up online and you'll see what it's like. But the joy of an Austin Princess, and there weren't many joys of owning an Austin Princess. Once again, it was a front-wheel drive uh, Leyland car. But the joy of an Austin Princess was, if you wanted to go away for the weekend camping and it was pouring down with rain, or you, you simply didn't want to use the tent, or you didn't have a tent but you wanted to stay away for the weekend, you could lay the seats down, the front seats, pull the seats as far forward as, as you could get them to go on their railings, and lay the seats flat, and they would form a perfect mattress, if you liked, with the rear seats, so the mm -hmm. entire interior of the car was like a bed. Yeah. And so if you had sleeping bags and a couple of pillows, you could go camping in the car. You used to do that quite quite regularly. It was yes, not not many cars. And of course, we talk about bucket seats or not being bucket seats as the case may be. These seats were pretty much flat. Yeah. So it was it was just one of those quirks of design. I'm sure they never intended it to be this way, but uh, yeah, you could you could live in the car for the weekend. <laughs> so, there, so there you are, gentlemen. If you're looking for a cheap caravan, have a look online and see if you can get hold of an Austin Princess. You won't regret it. Well, perhaps you will. And I'm sure there's just a plenty here in the U.S. <laughs> I suspect. Check with Carmax. See if they have one. I suspect they were so unreliable. With all due respect to um, the Austin Princess, I bet there are not many in England. 
I imagine they were one of the first cars to become cube-shaped when that technology opened up in scrapyards. Yeah, or, be, or become piles of brown uh, powder at this point. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, this is definitely a topic that we can continue on and, and such. And I think we'll have to revisit. And yeah. no, we're going to do a lot of car talk down the line. So. Uh, yes. But today, I think we have to. Well, wrap it was it up. fun. Yeah, I would never have thought about that Austin Princess probably for the rest of my life, Kevin. If we hadn't have been having this conversation today at the side of the lake, so that's. That's a great fun thing to do, isn't it? Just to reminisce about those things. Well, I guess, I guess this does what a therapist would do. It brings out those, <laughs> those deep, <laughs> deep-rooted uh, memories. Be them good, be them bad. Here they are. Yeah. And hopefully make, they're good. There make a go. radio aerial out of a out of a uh, bent piece of wire, or use an Austin Princess as a temporary caravan if you need to go away for the weekend. It's kind of a public service we supply here. That's right. <laughs> Consider that's a survivalist guide in uh, however way it needs to be. Well, it looks like we've run out of time again. So we better think about saying, wrapping it up and saying goodbye. So from me, I'm going to say thanks very much for listening, gentle listener, and join us next time. And Kevin, what have you got to say? We'll see you soon. See you soon. Take care. Bye.